All right, so we're going we're gonna to pick back up at the Sunday school, the rest of the story. We've finally gotten to the second scroll of the Bible. Um, and so we'll do, a, we'll do a quick recap. And we're going on that. So we followed the, the story of Genesis through. We, we did our Genesis 1 through 11 kind of world history section. Then we started, started following Abraham and his kids. And we had gotten to the point where Joseph was in Egypt, and Joseph's story evolved there in Egypt. And that's kind of where we left him. And that's exactly where Exodus picks up. So just a quick recap. Uh, the nations are split up after Babel. They are assigned what they are assigned. They go out, and God keeps this idea of his portion, his inheritance. And Yahweh picks a man named Abraham, or Abram at the time. And uh, he starts his story there. Abram is going to be the one that helps to fulfill God's story, his mission. And uh, Abram has a pretty cool life. We talked about how it would be a pretty good miniseries on television with everything that Abraham does. You got some, you got some wars, you got some moving around, you got Pharaoh in the story, you got other things going on in the story. It would make for some good television. And then finally, Abraham kind of settles down and uh, he gets his promised child. And then we get Isaac. And Isaac, not a whole lot in the Bible about Isaac. Um, Isaac seems to, to keep it pretty good. He's not much of a scoundrel like his dad is at times. And so then we get Jacob. Jacob has his troubles, but Jacob comes through and then Jacob finally has many sons. And from these, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, and now we have our our sons of Israel. And uh, Joseph is the second to last son, and he ends up sold by his brothers because of his dreams and his attitude, and he gets sold down into Egypt, and now he's in Egypt. He goes through the whole mess that happens in Egypt, and through Joseph, God brings salvation of the body to not only Egypt, but all of, uh, all of Joseph's family in the civilized world of the Mediterranean. And uh, Joseph and his family are living comfortably in Egypt. And Joseph remains fairly popular there in Egypt, even a little bit beyond his death. And people remember Joseph, and they remember the, his people, and there's not much of an issue, but that's where we start in, in Exodus 1. We're going to go ahead and start in Exodus 1. The fun thing about Exodus is we are starting a second scroll now. So we've put Genesis behind us. So what I want to show is that um, the authorship, it appears that the authorship stays the same. So I'm going to ask you, there's phrases in here that kind of should take you back to Genesis when we go through these phrases. And I'm going to kind of quiz you on it and see what it takes you back to. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. And Joseph was already in Egypt. Uh, Then Joseph died and all of his brothers in all of that generation. So we have kind of a extinction event of the sons. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So 
So a couple things. What is that phrase at the end? What does that make you think back to? The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Genesis. Yeah, that's the order of Genesis. That's what God tells the humans to do twice. The first time with Adam and Eve, and then he tells them again with Noah. And uh, so here we see that it's actually happening. This is good. So far, this is starting out good. Um, It lets us know that the number of those that came down with Jacob were 70. Do you guys remember what 70 represented earlier on in Genesis multiple times? Goes on to represent the same stuff in the New Testament. 70 is wholeness, right? It's complete. 70 is wholeness, complete. It's oftentimes why they use 70 or 72, depending on what translations you're looking at. Um, 70 nations, that was to represent the completion of the nations. And then later on, Jesus, when he sends people out for ministry, that's our next 70 that we get to look at too, because it brings up the nations. But the 70, we know that the whole family came down. They didn't leave any behind back in Canaan. Um, So there they are. The people of Israel are finally fulfilling what God has wanted out of humans since the beginning. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Python and Ramesses, but they were more, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all of their work, They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right, so let's look at that. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service. What's that remind you of from previous Genesis stories? Kind of sounds like the curse of Adam, right? You're going to be working the field, and it's going to be hard and bitter. Then... The mortar and brick. Where's the last time we saw this connection with mortar and brick? You guys remember that? Tower of Babel. Exact words used for the Tower of Babel. So right now we've got connections. we got that their life is rough. We're seeing the curse of Adam, Adam going on. This working with, with the hands and the bitter hard work. We also now have connections. We're kind of associating Egypt with Babel, with the the mortar and brick. And that's going to be something, that's a theme that continues on through the entire Bible. You have this back and forth with Egypt and Babylon being the enemies and the the tools of of evil. And so here we have this connection where we're already connecting Egypt back to the idea of Babel, back to the idea of one person ruling over other nations, ruling and so, and they even bring up working in the field, bringing up that whole thing back to Genesis 3. So what we can see right now is that even though this is another scroll, the authorship is staying the same. They're using the same phrases. They're kind of, this is a, this isn't a, some people like to take the first five books of the Bible, called the books of Moses, and they try to say it's all written by these different people. 
But there's definitely cohesion in the language being used and the themes that are being used. Does that, does that make sense? Does it seem like that comes forth? Um, here's where you get into the first big debate in Exodus. And I spent hours on this. And it's just like the end times. I just come out to the point where like, whatever. I don't know if we'll ever know how things, how it went. The question is, when were the Hebrews and when did the Exodus take place? Because this determines... Like, and the only reason this really, really matters is all these stories and movies that we put out for people to tell the story that use different pharaohs in different times. And then when we're trying to find archaeological evidence, it can kind of help pinpoint. They've come up with two dates, 1446 B.C. or 1250 B.C. Uh, many people smarter than I have studied this down and have no answers. And... Um, I've listened to a lot on it. It can work out either way. Sometimes they, they try to date back from the idea of when, when Solomon dedicates the temple. There's some phrases about the number of years back that they left Egypt. So some people try to speculate, okay, when was the temple of Solomon built? We'll work back from that. Um, but again, we don't even know when that's built for an exact date. So we can't really date back from that. It doesn't really matter. But the only thing it does is it changes the background slightly for what's going on in Egypt at the time that the Hebrews are there. We do know either way, this is the golden age of Egypt. So this is the dawn of the new kingdom of Egypt. And um, if it's 1446, you have the 18th dynasty of Egypt, which is the first dynasty of the new kingdom. And uh, Joseph actually would have been very much involved in the rise of Egypt to their golden age. So that's kind of cool. If it did happen then, Joseph was an integral part of the rise of one of the world's greatest civilizations of all time. He would have had a hand in that. Um, also by this time, they are becoming an imperial power. And by 1400, the estimation is that Thebes, the capital of Egypt, is the largest city in the world. Um, it actually overtakes Memphis, which is also in Egypt. So you have these giant, giant cities going on in Egypt, bigger than anywhere else in the world at the time. The 1400s, you start to see the rise of the Assyrians to the north, and you get this in, the, you get this in documentation. Egypt and the Assyrians are going to butt heads. Uh, this begins something that's going to take place over thousands of years. They're going to continue to butt heads, and the people that are in the middle of them butting heads are the Hebrews. Um, and the Canaanite town of Ugarit is at its height too. So the Canaanite, the Canaanite people, they're kind of at the peak of, of their civilization too. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the world stage if this is happening in the 1400s. So these are buildings that would have been built. Um, this is one of the palaces at the time. Um, another picture of what it probably looked like when it was done. But these were built at the time of the Hebrews. Whether the Hebrews actually built these, we don't know. But this is, if, it's, if you use the old dates, these are a couple of the buildings that, that were made for the Pharaoh. And during that time, maybe Hebrew work done on it? I don't know. We don't really know. Um, if it does take place in the 1250s, which is that, that younger date, um, you have Ramesses II, who is considered like the pinnacle of the pharaohs. So that's interesting, because that means that's Moses' household growing up. Um, but we don't know. 
Again, we don't know. I think the Prince of Egypt cartoon movie uses Ramesses. Um, but we, we, like I said, we just don't know. But here's, here's one of the things that was built during his time. Uh, that is his tomb, eventually, where they're going to put him. You see that in a lot of movies. You see that on, I don't know if that was an Indiana Jones one, but like Murder on the Nile, they always use this. And uh, so that's just kind of what's going on in Egypt at the time. That's what Moses is going to be involved in. We'll get to Moses here. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other one Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. It's an interesting line. I don't know. I didn't look into the concept of midwives, if they were all single women at the time or something. I don't know why that's noted. Um, we also don't know if the midwives are Hebrew midwives or if they are Egyptian midwives. Maybe if they're Hebrew midwives, uh, they were allowed to have families and they didn't have to worry about the edicts of Pharaoh. I don't know. I was, I was just kind of curious about that one, but never really found much on that. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We also don't know the exact intents of Pharaoh with that. Obviously, we know he wanted to kill the children. Um, why he threw them into the Nile, we can speculate that it has something to do with the worship of the gods. So again, we know that God is very serious in the Old Testament about the sacrifice of babies to the demonic strongholds of the time. So I don't know. It could just be that was the quickest way to kill him. We're just going to drown all the kids probably had some symbolism that we're giving these kids over um, to the Nile, which represented multiple gods, and the gods were in charge of the Nile. And so that gets us through Exodus 1. And just looking at the Nile, we got it. when we think of the Nile, we don't need to think of, like, Rapid River. <laughs> we need to think of giant, giant river. And so the danger of it when we get to Moses and, and the miracle itself of Moses floating down. So when I think of the Nile, I think it seems like this. Um, it's actually Roman architecture there that's built later, but that stuff in the back is Egyptian. And then I also think of this. That's what I think of when I think of the Nile. And so I think of flooding. I think of these giant crocodiles. Interestingly enough, we'll talk about crocodiles again when we start talking about the, the battles between Moses and Pharaoh's magicians and different translations on that. Um, there's a Nile crocodile. He's a big guy. Maybe his great-great-grandparents ate some Hebrew babies. I don't know. But there's your crocodiles. Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him three months. I don't know why we're noting that he's a fine child. Maybe there was something exceptional about Moses from the start. Could be. I don't know. But they make a note of that. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes 
and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. Bitumen and pitch. Where did we hear that before? You guys remember bitumen and pitch? The ark. Yeah, so they were, we're taking us back to the ark. So we're going to get a tiny little ark now that's also, instead of holding the entire family and animals in it, it's going to hold the vessel that God is going to use for salvation of people again. And so, again, the author is weaving that through. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. The other thing I want to note is what family did Moses come from? Levi. All right. And what are Levites normally known as? The priests. So Moses is going to be a priest and he's going to be a prince. So there's that whole priest and kingship, your kingdom of priests, that's already being telegraphed back in Exodus 2. Um, so that's fun. And we'll talk more about the concept of Moses being a prince here in a little bit. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. We don't know exactly if Moses actually means that. Moses is, there is, Moses does show up as an Egyptian name. It usually means son in Egyptian. So, so for example, if Moses is part of the older date of Egypt, there's a pharaoh whose name is Tut Moses, which means son of Tut. So, so for the Egyptians, Moses means son, which is also kind of fun, salvation through the son. Um, I really couldn't find anything about drawing him out of water and actually Moses' name meaning that. So I'm not sure what's going on there. There's probably more to dig into there. Um, yeah, so from an Egyptian standpoint, Moses, you do have Pharaoh's top Moses. Um, there are people, historians speculate. Now, again, we don't know if it's an old date or the early date, but placing them into this, um, there are some that would say that Moses would actually possibly be the uncle to King Tut. And if that is the case, it is, I don't know. Um, but that's a speculation that's, that's thrown out there. Uh, multiple people have thought that. And then just placing that. There are some stuff at the time where someone's name is actually scratched off the sarcophagus. They were trying to get rid of somebody's name on a couple of that time eras. Could be they're erasing, they erasing Moses because of what he did. The other thing that I remember about the Egyptians, and you talk about this in history class a little bit, they don't record defeats. Anytime anything goes bad in Egypt, they don't record it. So it's a very selective history, which is kind of what people, we do the same thing nowadays, and kind of gloss over things really quickly. So you could, have, um, you could have a document in Akkadian talking about the battle between some Assyrians and some Egyptians for the Assyrians won, and it can occur in multiple documents found outside of that, but you will never find that on one of the walls in Egypt. You'll never find that in any of their, their documents. They do not record defeats. 
So, um, so if they were angry about Moses, it will be very tough to find any archaeological evidence of a Moses person, especially if he's got an Egyptian name that we're not aware of. Um, the other thing, we do, know, we do know from documents that there are, there are Hebrews in Egypt throughout this whole timeline, but it didn't, they're kind of there the whole time. It's old date and early date. There's some that are still there later on, so if it is an older date, not to be all weird with the dates, but they do show up as the Hebero people is what they're, they're referenced as which sounds really close to Hebrew. Um, so there is evidence of them being there, but they seem to, if there is a Moses figure, there's a good chance they've scrubbed it out. In some cases, we know in certain time frames they were scrubbing somebody's name out on a couple things. So there's evidence. There's archaeological evidence there. So Moses' mother gets to nurse him. Moses' mother gets to bring him in. We don't know how long she gets to do it. We don't know how long they nursed. Could have been a two-year thing, could have been whatever. So he had some upbringing in Hebrew culture, but not a ton. And like, how much do you actually remember before you're two? I don't know. Depends on the kid. Um, he's a fine boy, though, that Moses. So Exodus 2.11. We're going to time jump here, because that's what we do. One day, when Moses had grown up, of course, we don't know what that means. We don't know how old Moses is at this time. Uh, he went out to his people, and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses, excuse me, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So the first thing we see here, here's our reference to Moses being a prince. The Hebrews getting mouthy, the Hebrews making it clear, you're not prince over us. You know, you're not prince or judge. Some people have taken this to mean like, did Moses do some stuff with the judge work? It's possible a lot of Pharaoh's kids would sit and judge because Pharaoh would not judge all the cases. So there's, it's possible that that's, that's kind of what Moses did. It would also make sense when we, start, when we start looking at the documents later in the Torah, we start looking at Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is set up perfectly um, like other judicial documents from the era, the way it's written. Um, it's pretty incredible, the different books, how they look and how they compare um, but yeah, so we don't know. But there is, you know, they're making a comment to Moses being a prince and a judge and making it that, you know, you're an Egyptian. Um, so that's fine. That's where a lot of people take the whole prince thing. Being a son of Pharaoh, but then actually calling him, Pharaoh can have lots of kids. Some pharaohs had tons. I think there was a pharaoh that had like 70 kids at one point. It might have been Ramesses, I have to remember. Anyway, lots of princes doesn't necessarily mean that he was going to be Pharaoh. Still a prince. So Moses, peace out, gets out of town, killed an Egyptian. He knows that it's known. Goes to Midian. Here's a little jaunt to Midian, based on where we believe Moses would have been living at the time with the royalty. So again, the map is small. Can't do a whole lot. But the journey down there looks a lot like the journey of what? The Exodus at times, when they dip down and take the long, they go around. Um, so there you go. There's his journey. That's where he goes. 
So now he's, he's, he's hanging out in the Arabian Peninsula with the Midian people. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and they drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. This could be cool. What did Moses do to take on all these shepherds and do what he did? Probably a cool story. Was Moses a really good fighter? I don't know. Maybe he had that from his Abraham genes. He knew how to get things done. I don't know. But it's kind of fun because it sounds like it was a bunch of shepherds and Moses is down there by his own and he does this. And when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So what we need to know about the Midianites is if you look back into genealogy stuff, the Midianites kind of trace back to Esau. That's where most people trace them back to. So what he's talking about a priest of Midian. If we know our family line stuff, there's a good chance that this priest of Midian was a Yahweh worshiper. And I think that that gets confirmed as we go forward. But it's interesting. That's, you know, that's where God has him end up. So what's he going to learn there? What's Moses going to learn there? Because Moses, I don't know how much Moses knew about his forefathers. And uh, this time with him, it's interesting. And we'll see. And we really can't go much further because then you get into the burning bush. There's just so much going on with the burning bush that we really can't do it. And it's Thanksgiving dinner day. So so this is where we're going to leave them. Uh, There's one final paragraph. Moses gets his segue. Time passes. He murders. He goes down there. He's hanging out. He's got a wife. He just had a kid. Now Moses is living his life. And then we get this as a reminder. And during those days... During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we get this whole groaning and complaining going up to God, which also reminds us of early Genesis. When people are groaning and the cries go up to God and God steps in to do certain things, especially in Genesis 1 through 11. Um, And so that's kind of where we're going to leave it today. We know that something's going to come. We know that that Pharaoh is now dead. So the next Pharaoh that is coming up now is going to be someone that Moses is very acquainted with. And we're starting to set up our showdown. Um, So I think we're going to leave it there. So what do we know right now? We know that Yahweh has plans for the cries of his people. This harkens back to other times when he's delivered. Um, we know that Moses was raised a prince of Egypt. He knows that he is Hebrew. He has a heart for his people. We saw him just step in and take to trying to deliver his people his way. Um, we also know that it looks like he's got some stuff to work through. We definitely, Moses seems to have an anger problem. He split and killed on that guy right there. There might be some pride in there. The way that one Hebrew was talking to him about being a prince prince and a judge, you're not like that over us. Maybe there is a way that Moses carried himself. That's assumption. I don't know about the pride thing, but we do know he's got some anger stuff going on. And we also see another example of the simplest plan is not always the right plan. So if God had wanted to, 
You could have saved Moses all those times in the wilderness. Moses wanted to deliver his people. God could have strengthened Moses. The people could have revolted. Moses could have left him. Evidently, there's a chance. There's a chance that Moses does have military training based on his, we know the way that the sons of Pharaoh were raised. We could have done this all in Moses' plan, Moses' timing. God could have used this military commander, rescue the people, sent him out. That would have been the simple way and the quick way to do them. Yahweh's plan is different. And we're going to see what Yahweh's plan is. And it looks like Moses is going to have to sit down in the desert and brew for a while. And it's just, once again, that character thing that God has to build. And we continue to get built in in our own lives. When things seem boring or when things seem like we're not doing what we're doing, there's that character work going on. This is another example early on in the Bible that this is the method of God to build character in us and to, to sift us through like that. So I'm going to end it right there. We'll continue on the next time with the burning bush and uh, the name of Yahweh. What's going on with that? So Lord, we come to you today. We come to you thankful. Lord, we, we know that you have plans. All through the Bible, we see that you are a God that has plans for his people. You are a God that listens to the cries of his people, and you are a faithful God. And as we celebrate this day of thankfulness, Lord, the thing that we are super thankful for every day is your faithfulness. You always come through, and we're thankful for that, Lord. Truly thankful. I just ask that as we go through today, as we fellowship, Lord, that you just be with us, that we would enjoy this time where we can sit back with ourselves and talk and enjoy the day being thankful of things that you've done, being thankful for the food that you've provided, being thankful for the fellowship that you bring us in, what you've done for our family here. Lord, we are truly thankful. Thousands and thousands of years have passed, and you're still that faithful God. Your faithfulness to Moses is the same as your faithfulness to us. And we're thankful, Lord. Thank you for being faithful in the sending of your son, that you finished out this story, that Jesus did what he did. He took care of all of those problems. Thank you again, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.